0: Welcome to Season 1 of The Winemaker's Journey, a podcast about how a winemaker develops their personal approach to creating wines. I am your host, Daniel Barron, and over my 50-year career as a vineyard worker, vineyard manager, winemaker, and consultant, I have become increasingly conscious of the importance of mentorship in the development of a winemaker. On this podcast, we will explore the stories of my colleagues along this path, what were their influences and inspirations, and how did they take what they learned from their mentors to create their personal winemaking aesthetic. We will also talk with the innovators who are applying this inherited knowledge in new and exciting ways to add more precision to our efforts. And I'll add a few stories about my own career. Thank you for joining me on The Winemaker's Journey. The Winemaker's Journey is sponsored by Complant Wine, a partnership between my son Sam Barron and myself. Our mission is to make artisanal, moderate alcohol, single vineyard wines with vibrancy and finesse. Visit us at ComplantWine.com, C O M P L A N T wine.com, and by NakedWines.com, a passionate community of the world's best winemakers and wine drinkers, changing the way. Great wine is made. I'm proud to be among those winemakers. Look for the release of the 2019 Francophone Cabernet Sauvignon in 2021. From time to time, on the winemaker's journey, we will have brief technical updates. Today, on episode three with my guest, I'm going to discuss how we make picking decisions, in particular the use of berry sensory analysis and sugar loading curves to help us decide when to make that all-important picking decision. Today, my guest is winemaker Sam Barron, the winemaker at Kivelstadt Cellars and my partner in Complan Wine. Sam also happens to be my son. And we're going to talk about how winemakers decide when to pick. Sam, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, and I'm I'm particularly excited about this topic. It's something that, you know, Many people I find are not trained in grape sampling techniques. You do harvests. You know, I went to Davis. You went to Davis. It wasn't a focus when I was there. And it's something I'm lucky because I've been able to model the way that I I perform sensory after the way you perform sensory. And you had thought it out very, you know, you had spent the time to develop systems that were analytical and and could be... um, explain to those around you to a team very well and so I've always wondered how you developed your your kind of guidelines th- that you teach to other people regarding grape sensory and berry sensory
0: yeah and you make a, a great point because you know when we sample a vineyard or a vineyard block I mean we have to decide how we're going to go about getting a representative sample from a population of Millions and millions of berries. Uh, So that's something I hadn't even thought about talking about. But, you know, if there's a... a, How many passes do you make in a block? You know, it depends how big the block is. I I typically like to make four passes, and I'll divide a block by fifths. Uh, But sometimes you'd need to do more if it's a really... You know, if you're sampling a a 15-acre block of vineyard, you may need to make six or eight passes. It's a hard
1: thing to explain to somebody, right? Because it's such a, like kind of you go with your gut when you get out there. There's no, nobody ever gives you a calculation that's yeah. going to be a, rep- this is how you, you know, because in order to get a real statistically representative sample, you'd have to walk a lot of roads. Oh yeah, you
0: have. And, and of course, we forget <laughs> as as production winemakers that, Actually, if something is going to be meaningful, you need to do it five times so you have an error factor, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right? So anyway, you never do that. I mean, how many how many no. uh, experiment fermentation experiments are not replicated? Yeah. just yeah, uh, um And uh, one of my one of my running gags is, you know, oh. The replication is the vintage. I just do the same experiment next year. <laughs> it's just like, oh, I don't think so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um yeah, so typically, you know, if there's 30 rows, I divide by five and I uh, count in six rows and make my first pass. And, you know, after y- you've ended up a few times at the other end of the block from your truck, you realize, yes. oh, you know... <laughs> If I make even passes, (laughs) I end up back at the truck. So, um, and and, you know, in the early days, when I first started uh, this in the 1970s, people would go and they'd get a sample and they'd measure bricks, or they'd even go out into the vineyard with a refractometer. That one always drove me crazy when growers would do that. You go out with a refractometer and you pluck a few berries. One berry. Oh, it's at 25. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we used to jokingly say that there were two shelves in farm supply, one for growers and one for wineries because the growers always got a higher, a higher bricks um, and wanted you to pick tomorrow. And then when I went to Davis in the mid-'70s, there was a lot of talk about acid. I mean, the, the, the dilemma has always been uh, no matter how well you sample, you can get the same bricks. And then eventually, when we started looking at acid and pH, you can get the same bricks and the same acid and the same pH in two different vineyards and make very, very different wine. Yeah. Um, and so how can you assess those other factors? Um, mm-hmm. And the funny thing, I remember... People saying bricks acid ratio was the way we should go. And I no one could ever explain to me w- what you were looking for in bricks acid ratio. Was there a number or yeah. range? And
1: well and something that you've always said to me that I think is really true, if wine could just be defined by the numbers, wine would be boring. Right. There are these intangibles yeah. that that are so much more complex than just bricks and acid. And it's something that, you know, learning how to develop a vernacular regarding the sensory properties of grapes and pulp and skins is is the real thing that differentiates I, I think your system with with kind of just going out and tasting and looking at the numbers
0: yeah and so my evolution back to your original question uh took a real turn um i had been you know it was 1981 i went to bordeaux 1982 vintage i was working with um Christian Moix and Jean-Claude Berouet at their properties in around Liborne and saint Mio and Pomerol, and especially Chateau Petrus, uh, where I happened to be living. Um, and the idea was for me to be trained to start Dominus, which was a, a just a, a gleam in Christian Moix's eye at that point. And so I was very excited. Jean-Claude called me in and he said, uh, Daniel, uh, I'd like you to go sample Petrus. And the way they did Petrus was each block had a reference row, which is not what I consider particularly scientific. But, you know, over the years, I guess they they always sampled that row yeah. in each block and they knew how it correlated with the rest of the of the block. I, I suppose I, you know, I think it's one of the other factors. And we were talking about how you sample, you need to take into account if a block has, has a swale, has a gravel patch. I think the tendency to go down the middle of a block isn't always going to give you an average or a representative sample. But having said that they had these reference rows, he told me where they were. I I don't remember. They may have been tagged or, um, or he may have told me to count in from a certain point. And I went out, took a sample, and crushed it up. They had a little a little grape press they use, and and of course they don't talk in terms of bricks; they talk in terms of potential alcohol. And I went went into his office adjacent to the lab and said, uh, "Jean Claude, uh, we're at whatever we were, twelve percent potential, and the acid is is this, and the pH is that." And he said, "Oh, good." oh, good, we're getting close. And I said, oh, so when are we going to pick? And he looked and he said, we uh, we have to go taste the fruit. And I thought, taste the fruit? <laughs> what an interesting concept. <laughs> I remember, this was 1982. Mm-hmm. So the next day, uh, Christian Moex, Jean-Claude, uh, Michel Gelay, who is a regisseur, uh, with me tagging along, um, listening very carefully, walked uh, walked these rows each of these blocks at Petrus, uh, which is 12 and a half hectare, and at the end of each row would discuss the evolution of flavors, how the tannins were, and how the skins were progressing. And I was just amazed at this. And so we did this every few days until we decided it was time to pick.
1: And you had never seen this previously. At I had all. never seen this previously. Yeah, it was just take the bricks, maybe the acid, make a decision.
0: Yeah, and I don't. I mean, it seems so crazy now, but yeah. I don't remember ever popping a grape in my mouth when I was out sampling. <laughs> it was just no, no one thought to do it, and no one correlated the way grapes tasted. I mean, Aaron used to say the definition of a var- varietal was that you could that the wine tasted. The same as the grapes, or you could track the yeah. flavor of the grapes into the wine, but I don't remember ever basing anything on that. Mm-hmm. So when I got back, you know, started Dominus in in 1983, and it was an established vineyard at that point, and I applied this technique, um, which was very revolutionary in uh, in Napa Valley in 1983 and would walk and taste this fruit but i really didn't have any method methodology it was just really tasting and watching the evolution of pyrazines the the pyrazines diminishing and the and the fruity you know berry yeah. characters coming to the fore and the tannins uh calming down dissipating becoming less astringent mm-hmm. and then i moved to silver oak in 1994 and i applied it but there are a lot more vineyards to cover
1: well and yeah, and just Napa was growing, you had a bigger team. How are you gonna translate this when you're talking about ripeness with ten people? Yeah, I was trying to
0: do it all myself, which yeah, was
1: which is exhausting. It's a lot. I mean you could be tasting grapes literally all day. Yeah, every day, and not get yeah. to all the vineyards, and you know, and I'll, you have palate fatigue, and you have you know, like all that stuff's real emotional and physical fatigue <laughs> as well.
0: I'll never forget being up in the vineyard in in um, smudge
1: pots going
0: up in in Cloverdale. Mm-hmm. On somehow I ended up there, at three, oh boy, I I remember a couple times tasting one where it was got so dark that I wasn't sure I was going to be able to find my way out. And, uh, I think that was the time with my broken leg where it's on yeah. an ATV and I thought I was going to go off a cliff, but just walking along and saying, you know, is Linza pitching tonight? You know what's
1: <laughs> well. We know. God, what I vintage hope Wenyth
0: <laughs> has has uh, is going to cook <laughs> lamb tonight. That and I get to the end of this block, they oh,
1: go shit. What the hell did I just taste? I have no idea. Happened to all of us. You know, so
0: there was no no protocol, no rigor to it, and certainly wasn't quantifiable. So, in two thousand eight, I was really intrigued. When Vinquiry, which has since been purchased by ETS, but Vinquiry Lab uh, offered a seminar on berry sensory analysis taught by a a researcher from the Institut Cooperative du Vin, Montpellier, named Jacques Rousseau. Anyway, I went and attended this workshop, and this is a method that is, first of all, it's a protocol, kind of like the way we all taste wine, yeah, I don't know how much you've thought about it, but you know, all of us pretty much taste wine the same way. We swirl the glass, we look at the color, we look at the clarity, we smell uh, for fruity aromas, for defects, for wood, for fermentation aromas, second, etc. Et and then we put the wine in our mouth and go attack middle, finish, yeah. tannin, etc. So this was a similar way to assess grapes. And he also has had broken down um, the attributes of ripeness into um, four four categories: pulp maturity, pulp aromatic, skin maturity, and seed maturity. Yeah.
1: Which is, I think, it's cool for a multitude of reasons. Like what you just described, the walking walking the row, and you're kind of doing it without focus is is a natural thing to happen and you know we don't think about with tasting wine is all of those cues that rhythm that kind of channels you into that focused mindfulness right it's all part of this of this uh what's the word i'm looking for it's uh gestalt it's uh it's a ceremony it's a a ritual a ritual it's part of this ritual that you that then kind of turns your mind into this mindful way where you're focused on the flavors, you're really intense, you're locked in, right? And then even more so holding that paper in front of you so you're not missing anything. That's right. what I've found really valuable about it is it, it puts me in this ritual where I know I'm, I'm ready and it's time to be focused. And so you don't lose anything in the same way that swirling the glass and sniffing it, it kind of locks us into a ritual that we're so used to and accustomed to.
0: Right, and similar to to use the analogy similar to you know a wine can have ripe fruit, but be very tannic, yeah. there are different elements to grape maturity, and the different parts of the grape don't mature together and so to assess uh, the pulp the maturity of the pulp the which which he described as technical maturity the aromatic development then the phenolic maturity, which has more to do with the skins than the pulp Mm -hmm. and then the seed maturity.
1: And as you said, I mean, we walk vineyards all the time where the pulps there and the seeds are there, but the skins aren't right. And balancing that, that balancing, if it goes to, Like, do you, you, those are the harder decisions. It's never perfect. It's never like all three things are lining up like bing, bang, boom. Right. But if you're just thinking in that mindset, is this ripe or is this not, you're doing yourself a disservice.
0: Right. Well, the other thing too, is that that came to my mind, especially with red wines, which has been the majority of my career is that we don't make red wine with the juice, no, And we certainly don't make it with the seeds. It's yeah. nice to have seeds ripe, but when people say they're waiting for the seeds to get ripe... It's kind of bullshit, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a way of saying, I'm waiting for 30 bricks. We make red wine from the skins. And, yeah. and the maturity of the skins, not only the phenolic maturity, but also the cell walls breaking down. And that's the thing that, that Rousseau and his researchers found. They tried the skin discs. They tried... Um, what's the model fermentations. And what they determined, as often happens in sensory, that the human sensory is so acute and so much better than the most sophisticated machines and the textural element of when skin cells are breaking down Mm -hmm. is best assessed by chewing on them. By chewing on them in situ.
1: Right. So I think it's really like... You were lucky that you, I find that nowadays as somebody who's kind of come up in the industry more recently. <laughs> Are you uh, calling me old? <laughs> I couldn't. I'm trying to be political and diplomatic. But coming up more interest, like... When I started working harvests, right, there was a cellar master who was my mentor who showed me how to do things. And then when I worked in the lab, there was an assistant winemaker who showed me how to do things. And then all of a sudden, you're the winemaker, and it's just like, go sample grapes, right? And nobody's telling you how to do it. We're not talking about it very often in class. It's not, But it's one of the biggest, hardest processes that will really define how you make wines, the decisions you make who you are as a winemaker, the style of your wines, right? And so I was lucky, but I know a lot of people don't have that mentorship in walking vineyards. And there's also this thing where you don't want to say, nobody's going to say, oh, I don't know how to walk vineyards. It's But it's kind of part of the realities of of the industry now is that you get very, very good at processing fruit. You're bouncing around doing harvest, but a lot of times, in my in my case, I shouldn't speak too broadly, but I wasn't asked to, to make sensory decisions or even give sensory feedback. If I was testing, if I was pulling pulling a sample, it was pull the sample and tell me the numbers because right. I know the right. stuff's not right.
0: And the other thing that we sh- probably should have started this podcast with is it, it's it's probably the single most important decision in the life of a wine not what yeast you're going to ferment with or what temperature the fermentation yeah, is, not that those aren't important, yeah. but the day you pick, it's first of all, it's irreversible. It's a, it's hard to fix if you get it wrong. Yeah. And it's it's a crucial decision to the style and the success of the wine. 100%. Um, so to have some metrics that are based on, on what actually translates into the quality of the wine is, is super helpful.
1: And have, have you found that things that you, if you, when you look back at your berry scent, cause you, you, I know you're, you're, System in your rhythm, you write down notes, you have all these notes, and you have notes from the last time you tasted. Have you noticed those those flavors translating and the tannin the cell breakdown in the skins? Have you seen that translate into finished wines?
0: very much so now, of
1: course, the more you
0: do this and and that's that's the other thing Sam that's really kind of cool about this because you're writing everything down you have a scoring system and maybe we should get into that detail so you can look back and say oh you know i did comment that the that the pyrazines weren't completely resolved and you know it they're really apparent in this wine or i commented that the pyrazines weren't resolved and you know it turns out that it's just got a nice freshness. Mm -hmm. So you then are able to calibrate your observations Mm -hmm. and get better at it each season. So Mm -hmm. there is definitely that. But back to one of the points you made earlier, back in my early days at Silver Oak, when I was trying to do all this myself, when there's a system like this that's quantifiable and teachable, now you can have a crew of three or four people that are all speaking the same language. Yeah. And if you have um, someone, either a vineyard manager or a field, you know, uh, a, a grow relations person, you know, I've had this many times. And and the grow relations person, uh, shout out to Nick Felice at at Silver Oak. He and I got Boom. very much on the same page on this. And you know, he would call me from Cloverdale. I'd be down in Oakville, and he'd say, you know, the I'm I'm in. Uh, Cloverdale Block One, and the the pulp is dissolving, and the skin is shredding. Uh, it's lost the pyrazine character. I think it's ready in a couple of days. I'd say, okay, I can be up there in an hour or an hour and a half, and um, and I'll make the call. But if mm. he'd said there are eyeballs, which was our code for Not just right. <laughs> just you know balls of of gelatinous pulp. Mm-hmm. And the skins are leathery, and I still have a hint of pyrazines. It's improved from last week, but it's still not quite ready. It's like, ah, yeah, okay, I'll get by there sometime this week. So it really became and has become a, a language, and it's teach you can teach it to, to interns. And I never, you know, one of the things that always amused me was if you interviewed an intern and said, well, what would you like what would you like to do on this internship? And they'd say, I'd like to be involved in making the picking decisions. <laughs> and you're like, I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, you could teach them very sensory, and yeah. that's something they could take back with them to wherever they're going and be much better, to your point, at much better prepared for becoming a winemaker.
1: Well, and it is, the reason they're asking is because nobody's nobody's taught them to do that before. Right. right. And it's this important part of the process. One of the most important you can teach somebody to pump over a tank in a day, but it takes a while to develop these skills and, and, you know, intuitions regarding picking fruit and tasting fruit on the vine and how it's going to translate. So it's, it's awesome even to give them that and that you can teach it. That was a follow up question for me is how long do you think it takes to translate it to your team? You think it's a, you could do it in, in you know, you do a, a one day session. Yeah. yeah.
0: What I, what I started doing probably in about 2010. Um, and in fact, I credit you, Sam, I <laughs> learned this technique in 2008 and we were up at a vineyard in Cloverdale. I don't yeah. know why I keep referring to Cloverdale, but yeah. that's what it was. And I showed you this technique, it was late in the season in 2008, I remember in a block of Petit Verdot, yeah. and you said, this is really cool, so how much are you using it? And I said, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, you know, maybe I should be using this. <laughs> so, so I actually adopted it wholesale in 2009, and I would yeah. say by 2010, I would do a seminar as soon as the grapes were, you know, as soon as we had something that was at about 22, 23 mm-hmm. bricks, yeah. I would get the interns and the vineyard managers and the samplers and we'd have 15, 20 people and I I would go through it in a day. And I'll never forget, it, it kind of shocked me, I had a, an old school uh, vineyard manager after... A couple of weeks after the seminar, we and this guy was always pressuring me to pick. Can't we pick? Can't we pick? Can't we pick? Don't you think it's right? And we went out in the vineyard, and we walked, and we tasted the fruit. And I turned to him, and I said, what do you think? He said, we can't possibly pick this. The skins are not evolved at all. <laughs> oh, my
1: goodness. <laughs> it's cool. really changed well, how he looked at it. In a common vernacular, too, so everybody's on the same page, so people aren't disappointing. It's so good for culture to have yes. a common vernacular about what you would consider ripeness because it's obviously subjective depending on who you are and what kind of style of wine you want to make and having that common vernacular. So everybody's rowing in the same, in the same way. And they're also not saying, God damn, Dan, he never picks he want or right. it's too ripe. Why is he waiting so long? You know, having those expectations is great for culture.
0: And you know, it, it, the method cut, well, we should talk about the method and then get back to some, some anecdotes about using it. so, The method, as Jacques uh, conceived it, is that you, well, first of all, the method, as Jacques conceived it, was that you pluck berries and you take them into the lab, which I I immediately discarded. (laughs) I mean, you have to be out in the vineyard. Yeah. Unless there's a reason you can't get out. Uh, But because it's important to not just taste the berries, but also to observe the vines, to see... um, What's going on with the canopy, with the leaves? Mm -hmm. Are you starting to get senescent leaves? You know, is the canopy breaking down? And to also observe how easily the berries pull off the stems, that's part of technical maturity. Mm -hmm. Every variety is a little different. Uh, But you go, you pluck a couple berries, you put them in your mouth, you learn to have the berry hole facing out. Because if you do this all day and you swallow the juice, you better have a porta potty on a trailer behind your, I your truck. I learned that.
1: I learned that the hard way with at renter or at uh, Revm. I would eat the the seconds, the second crop, like oh, later boy. into the season, and ooh, it was bad.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> um, as we say, one of our one of our sayings is is grip in the trunk. <laughs> Always have a roll of toilet paper in the car. Kids, this is for you. Always have a roll of toilet paper and if uh, you gotta go,
1: I, grip the trunk and uh, lean back. <laughs> yeah. Some of these some of these vineyards are out there, you know? Yeah. Anyway, you go, you you pluck a couple
0: three berries, you put them in your mouth, and this is how you assess the technical maturity. You squeeze the berry between your tongue and roof of your mouth, and when and you kind of squirt that pulp out when it's perfectly ripe, which we would call a four. Uh, the berry, is, the the pulp is liquid, and you also assess the sugar acid ratio. So if it's uh, if it's nice a nice acid balance, and you're developing good fruity characters, whatever the variety be, if it's Cabernet more towards the blackberry, if it's Merlot more black cherry. Um, and Pinot Noir, of course, raspberry, strawberry range. Mm-hmm. Then you, meanwhile, you have saved the skins and you put the skins uh, between your molars. And this is where people always laugh. You chew exactly 15 times. <laughs> Every and time
1: I explain that to anybody, yeah. they think you're bullshitting. I know. But, you know, you have to have some, some kind of kind standard. Of yeah, And
0: if the skins are breaking down into tiny little pieces, then that's a really good sign. And then you spit out this extract that you've gotten by chewing the skins and you can really see how the color is going to be because it'll either be dark purple or light purple. And mm-hmm. it, you, it's really interesting how you can translate.
1: It's it's amazing. It blew my mind the first time I did it. And then the first time I did it throughout a season, how you see it evolve, it's it's. It really is amazing how much you can see by with that technique alone in the color.
0: Yeah. And then Jacques had this funny thing where you you pull your teeth up, oh, your lip up over your front teeth, and you rub your tongue on. I I don't bother with that anymore. You have a sense of, of mm-hmm. how tannic it is uh, just by <laughs> when you start biting the inside of your cheek yeah. because it has dissolved all the saliva in your mouth, it's it is, pretty yeah. tannic. <laughs> And then in the meantime, you know, along the way you spit the seeds into your hand or the back of your clipboard and mm-hmm. and you can look for, you know, 2020, uh, I'm amazed at how ripe the seeds are. Yes, it's seeds rare are really to see out. seeds this brown mm-hmm. in California. Yes. Typically in California, the pulp ripens first, followed by the skins and followed by the seeds last. But, yeah. you know, every year is different, and to some degree, every, every vineyard is different. One of the funny things is people talk about Pinot Noir having a thin skin uh, because these tight clusters tend to rot, but I can tell you, having chewed on hundreds and hundreds of Pinot Noir skins and Merlot skins and Petit Verdot and Petit serrat and Pinot Noir has one of the thickest skins of any variety. Um, it is not a thin skin variety, but it 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 does rot because it's the tightest it's tight clusters, tight clusters of anything. Yeah. So one of the things that I did, and again, this will be in the show notes. I'll have a PDF um, in the show notes. Um, I added two more categories. No, one more category, I should say. So I added skin aromatic ripeness uh, mm-hmm. because. Sometimes, particularly when you're assessing pyrazines, you, when you're chewing on those skins, you get different aromatics than you do in the yeah. pulp. For those so, of you who
1: don't know, uh, pyrazines are kind of the flavors of bell pepper that are predominant in a lot of Bordeaux varietals. Right. And
0: then the other thing I did, which I thought was really important, because the, the French and Australians use a four-point scale and the, the, I don't want to get too esoteric, but the Australians altered it so low acid was a high score. The French have high acid being a high score, which means you can't add them up and come to a number. The Australians wanted to add it up and come to one number, which I don't really think is that important. Mm. But I added five and six because in California we can have overripeness.
1: Wait, fruit can be too ripe? Yes, in my opinion. Yeah, it can be a big issue. And I I think I was actually going to, I think that's one of the cooler things that you did because there, I mean, we walk vineyards all the time where you're, it's a balance and some stuff will be beyond where you want it and some stuff won't be. Yeah.
0: And it's a judgment call is what you want. But, I tend to look for fresh fruit character. If it gets to jammy, I call that a five. If it gets to raisiny or baked, I call that a six. So I'm trying to avoid that. And you can get to the point where the, the pulp is so liquid that the berry just falls off in your hand. And um, and you can get to the point where the skins are so, are so evolved, the cell walls have broken down so much that you can't even get 15 chews. It yeah. just kind of dissolves in your mouth. So... Um, I've added those uh, category five and six. And so, you know, we can, we can have this vocabulary um, and, and it's really, it's really helpful to have this lexicon Mm -hmm. uh, between different people who are out in the team looking at, at different vineyards or different blocks or going and it's great to be able to look back on your notes and what i wanted to talk about was how this informed the decisions in 2010 and 2011 i was uh shocked and when i saw winemakers trying to make you know, 2009 wines in 2010. I mean, the vintage was just not offering it. Well,
1: what, what was the difference between the two vintages?
0: Well, 9 was warm, was a classic warm California vintage, and 10 and 11 were quite cool.
1: Yeah, and, and early rains in 11.
0: Yeah, early rains in 11. But what that meant is a long, slow ripening, and it meant that we got to aromatic maturity, phenolic maturity, and maturity of skins at relatively low bricks yeah. and with using this method you know everyone is is frightened of pulling fruit off too early and having green wines and wines with no body and 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 no depth but I think this kind of method and following this following the evolution of the skins and the flavors really gave us the confidence to pick at relatively low bricks in both 10 and 11 and make some of my favorite wines at Silver Oak and me. Yeah. On the other hand, it cuts both ways because it also means sometimes, you know, you're at 25, 26 bricks and you really don't want to make a 15% alcohol wine, but you recognize that the fruit's not, not there, not there. Yeah.
1: But having that is so much, it's, it's just, once again, it's, it's another tool in your tool belt, but it's an important one to make, as to assess vintages and that's the beauty of what we do right is get to live with the vintage get to live with the climate and kind of work with it and treat each one differently it's so important to treat it with respect and to treat it differently every vintage and yeah it, and it enables you to do that and hopefully not always but most of the time more often than not make the right decision
0: yes it and it gives you confidence to to go against uh Go against the grain sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the other, now this has kind of evolved of late. Um, I mean, I'm still doing berry sensory, but one of the other tools that has really come into the fore and shout out to uh, Thibaut Scolash and the team at fruition science. uh, We were working with them at silver Oak and Toomey, And one of the metrics they, they use is um, sugar loading or Mm -hmm. if you, if you will uh, sugar per berry. So what is what is sugar loading? So sh- sugar loading curves are are created by not just looking at bricks, but looking at sugar per berry. So to do this it's it's actually very simple, and you know people are resistant at first because you need berry weight. And you know mm-hmm. when you ask your your lab or your sampler, you know, oh, I need be berry weight. It's impossible to do that. It's, it's impossible so to do that. They say <laughs> so much. Really? Um, do you have a scale? Yes. Can you count to a hundred? Yes. So give me a berry weight. Yeah. And and you know I had the same. I've been doing them now that I'm on that I'm on my own. And you know what? It's just not that big a deal. Uh-huh. And it's really interesting because. The berries, you know, I'll never forget when when we were selling grapes from from one of the Silver Oak Vineyards, and one of the wineries said, "Oh, we, we're we're waiting, we we want to wait for the acid to come into rate, better ratio with the sugar." And I pointed out to them that the grapes had gone from weighing a gram a piece to weighing eight tenths of a gram a piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's a twenty percent loss, and when oh. you get up over twenty four. 24 and a half bricks. The only way you're getting to 26, 27, 28 is through dehydration. And you can really watch this happening through berry weights. And the other thing is that, you know, when we have a heat wave, we'll have the berry, berry weights shrink. And then when we have cool, foggy weather, they'll come back up and people will say, Oh, the bricks is going backwards. Bricks doesn't go backwards. (laughs) You know, sugar doesn't get exported from the berries, but, water gets imported to them and so when you look at berry weight what you see in an ideal situation is the sugar and the sugar loading or the sugar per berry will increase and then hit an inflection point where it flattens out and
1: and so do you is is the goal i mean it seems like another tool for you to be in tune with what's happening kind of within the berry and its ripening process.
0: Well, it's also been shown that phenolic, um, the phenolic peak, the peak of aromatics and anthocyanins mm-hmm. occurs about a week after that inflection point. Yeah. So if you can, if you have that kind, and it, it, the curves aren't always so pretty, Mm-hmm. In, in real life but the
1: information's but, good i've actually seen, seen yours from this vintage in the last and and the information seems seems reliable it's a it's a powerful tool
0: it's a powerful tool and so combined with very sensory looking at inflection points and and sugar loading it makes for some really informed picking decisions cool. yeah yeah that concludes our technical update on picking decisions i hope you enjoyed it And uh, let us know your feedback and tune in for our next interview, uh, episode four with Mia Klein. Thanks for listening to The Winemaker's Journey.